Good morning. How's everyone doing? I do want to add on to something that Johnny was talking about. Um, you know, yesterday morning we had received the invitation from another church to be a part of, for our church to be a part of the uh, supporting the police officers this morning. And um, we've always been very responsive to, to things like that and being involved in our community. We wanted to, to do that as well. Um, um, and, and, you know, part of, part of it is like, you know, I can't imagine being a police officer and going out to work each morning or each day or evening or whenever, going to work each day wondering if today's the day I don't come back home to my family, right? But you know what else I can't imagine? I can't imagine being an African-American man wondering if the day that I leave my house, I won't come home either. And there's a lot of injustices going on in the world. And one of the things that I prayed this morning at the, at the, at the prayer rally was that we would all recognize who our enemy is. Right? We're, our enemy is not flesh and blood. Our enemy is powers and principalities in the unseen world. That's what scripture tells us. And we have got to stand up and fight against our enemy. And we need to live with the love and humility and compassion of Jesus in this world. So we're going we're gonna to do some more things. We're going to address this um, next week. I, I ask that everyone would please be here next week so we can all sort of join together as a church and, and, and really be salt and light in this world. That we, we would, you know, if there's anything in us that thinks contrary to God's word, that we would get rid of that and that we would just be the salt and light that Jesus called us to be. So, um, okay, if you have your Bibles, turn to um, Luke 13. Luke chapter 13, we are uh, in our, or I'm sorry, Luke 18, Luke 18. Um, we're in our series Spoken, where we're talking about some of the stories that reveal who God is, and, um, and, and these stories that we've looked at give us incredible insight into who God is, what his character is like, and how we relate to him. Uh, we've looked at um, stories that reveal God's abounding love towards us. We've looked at stories that reveal his amazing grace and mercy that just lavishes forgiveness on us um, despite ourselves, despite how we live and act. We looked at um, a story that reveals God's faithfulness and that he can be trusted. And we looked at a story that reveals how God celebrates us when we turn to him. Today I want to look at a story that reveals God's response to us from a couple of contrasting postures in the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. The story begins in verse 9 in Luke 18 with a narrative sentence from Luke stating to whom Jesus was addressing this story to. All right, Luke 18.9 says... Then Jesus told this story to some who had great confidence in their own righteousness and scorned everyone else. I like the way the New Century Version puts it. It says, Jesus told this story to some people who thought they were very good and looked down on everyone else. 
Now, that statement immediately makes you think of which people group in the Gospels. Pharisees, exactly, right? Um, But is the audience in this story limited to the Pharisees? No. The sentence is, is carefully crafted by the Holy Spirit to include everyone who trusts in or places confidence in their own self-righteousness and looks at, and, and as a result of that, they look down on everyone else, which doesn't really include any of you guys, right? No, I didn't think so. So, But let's just look at the story just to be sure, okay? Um, Luke uh, 18, verse 10, Jesus begins the story. He says, two men went to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee, and the other was a despised tax collector. Now, what do you think Jesus' audience is thinking at this point? Remember, these are people who had great confidence in themselves, in their own righteousness, and they scorned everyone else. They looked down on everyone else. I mean, they're probably thinking, was no one watching the temple that day? Who let that tax collector in there, right? I mean, who, 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 what idiot let that tax collector, that despised tax collector, in the temple? All right, well, even though he's in there, even though he's made it into the temple to pray, this ought to be good, right? The Pharisee is really going to show him, show him up because Pharisees know how to pray. But tax collectors, what do they know about prayer? This Pharisee is really going to put him to shame. Verse 11, the Pharisee stood by himself and prayed this prayer. I thank you, God, that I am not a sinner like everyone else. Wow, he's really full of himself, isn't he? To think he is like the only one who's not a sinner. I thank you, God, I am not a sinner like everyone else, for I don't cheat, I don't sin, and I don't commit adultery. I'm certainly not like that tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I give you a tenth of my income. Now, what you have to understand here is that Jesus' audience, most likely, Jesus' audience saw nothing wrong with the Pharisees' prayer. And why is that? I mean, I'm sure Jesus' Jesus' audience is like, nice dude, awesome prayer, right? You, you set yourself apart. You show God how good you, you obey the law. Certainly, you have got God's attention now. He's going to want to give you anything you ask for. Hmm, I might even have to write that, save that prayer for myself, right? I mean, why would they be thinking that, right? Because again, Jesus is speaking to whom? Those who had great confidence in their own self-righteousness and scorned everyone else, right? That's his audience. His audience is the character in the the story, right? So I'm sure his audience saw nothing wrong with the Pharisees' prayer. Jesus continues, but the tax collector stood at a distance and dared not even lift his eyes to heaven as he prayed. Instead, he beat his chest in sorrow, saying, Oh God, be merciful to me, for I am a sinner. And Jesus' audience is probably like, Wow, that was really pathetic. Right? I mean, but it was just like we thought, right? The Pharisee showed him up. His Pharisee had a far superior prayer than the tax collector. But hey, at least he's honest, right? But then Jesus' story takes an unexpected turn for his audience as he closes the story. Luke 8, 
18.14, I tell you, this sinner, not the Pharisee, returned home justified before God. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Now, there's a couple of things we sort of need to get set straight before we move on just to avoid any confusion for us. And uh, specifically, what we need to understand is what Jesus meant when he said the sinner returned home justified because of his prayer, right? Because most of us understand that the only way we are justified before God is because of Jesus, right? Not anything we do or have done, which includes a humble prayer, right? The only way we are justified before God is through faith in Jesus Christ who paid the price for all of our sin. This is an absolute truth for those of us who live in, under the new covenant. So then why did the tax collector, why did his humility make him justified before God then? Well, it's because Jesus hadn't initiated the new covenant yet, right? It's still... It's still the law. It's still the time of the law. It's still, and so, and, and so you have to not only recognize the audience that Jesus is speaking to, you've got to realize the setting as well. Jesus told this story while the law was still in effect. And even the, the story itself gives us a setting because where did the two men go to pray? The temple, exactly, right? So in the temple model or in the Old Testament law, you had to do things to be justified by God. You had to earn your way into right standing with him by following and and obeying the law. So the tax collector was justified before God because of his humility, even though he was a self-admitted sinner, right? Which sort of reminds us, brings us back to the story of of Jesus when he met the, um, the woman caught in adultery, right? The Pharisees bring this woman caught in adultery. She's guilty of her crime. The law says she should be stoned and put to death. And they brought Jesus to her to to test him to see what he would do with her. And we know the story. He, you know, he bent down and started writing in the dirt, and and then he makes a statement. You know, he is without sin. Throw the first stone, and they start dropping their stones. He goes back to writing in the dirt, and eventually they all leave. And then Jesus confronts this woman and he says where are your accusers she says they've all left he says neither do I accuse you go and sin no more the thing that makes us question is that the law was still in effect why didn't he uphold the punishment and that would be the Pharisees question to Jesus too if the law is still in effect, then why isn't she dying right now? Right? Why is he letting her off the hook? And it brings us to the, the truth that we find in Romans chapter 3, where it talks about, it, it sums up the gospel where it says that, that um, Jesus was looking ahead to include those who sinned in times past. So when he met that woman, he was including her in what he was going to do because he knew he was going to die for her which is kind of mind-boggling because we have a tendency to think linear, you know, in timelines, in, in linear process, right? 
But Jesus was looking ahead and counting her in. Same with this guy, right? The same with the guy in the story. He's guilty of sin, right? But because of his humility, he's justified before God. But the Pharisee had become so proud of his self-righteousness that it kept him from being justified before God, even under the law. Even though he was so good at obeying the law, he wasn't justified because of his pride. Which leads us to the part of, the, the part of God's character that Jesus is really pointing to in the story. It's the point of the whole parable. That God hates pride, but he honors humility. Or as Peter stated it in his first letter, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God opposed that Pharisee, but he gave grace, great grace, because he was a self-admitted sinner to the tax collector. But what you have to understand is that Peter said this in the New Testament, but that wasn't a newly recognized characteristic of God that was only made evident in the New Covenant. He was quoting something from the Old Testament. He was quoting Proverbs 3.34. And and this verse from Proverbs 3 isn't isolated either. The dangers of pride is taught all through the Old Testament hundreds of times. And it's even modeled and seen, its it's destructive forces seen modeled in the lives of of people in their history. A perfect example is King Uzziah. Let me read this passage in 2 Chronicles 26. Uzziah was 16 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 52 years. His mother was Jechaliah from Jerusalem. He did what was pleasing in the Lord's sight, just as his father Amaziah had done. Uzziah sought sought God during the days of Zechariah. Zechariah was a prophet of of that time. Uzziah sought God during the days of Zechariah, who taught him to fear God. And as long as the king sought guidance from the Lord, God gave him success. Now, the next ten verses in that chapter go on to describe what that success looked like. And it was amazing how much God had blessed him over the years. But in the middle of verse 15, something happens. Verse 15, his fame spread far and wide, for the Lord gave him marvelous help, and he became very powerful. But when he had become powerful, he also became proud, which led to his downfall. He sinned against the Lord his God by entering the sanctuary of the Lord's temple and personally burning incense on the incense altar. Azariah the high priest went in after him with 80 other priests of the Lord, all brave men, They confronted King Uzziah and said, It is not for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord. That is the work of the priests alone, the descendants of Aaron who were set apart for this work. Get out of the sanctuary, for you have sinned. The Lord God will not honor you for this. Now that was Uzziah's opportunity, right? To get out and hopefully, but no. Pride leads us to... Listen to what he does next. Uzziah, who was holding an incense burner, became furious. But as he was standing there raging at the priest, I mean, he's, still, he's arguing his case even though he knows he's wrong, right? 
even as he was standing there raging at the priest before the incense altar in the Lord's temple, leprosy suddenly broke out on his forehead. When Azariah the high priest and all the other priests saw the leprosy, they rushed him out, and the king himself was eager to get out because the Lord had struck him. So King Uzziah had leprosy until the day he died. Now, you would think that stories like this would help people keep a really vigilant watch against pride seeping in, right? I mean, how could the Pharisees of Jesus' day, who knew the law, the Old Testament, forward and backward, they knew this story? How could they have missed this? How could they have let pride seep in? Why would Jesus even need to confront the pride in this parable? You know, what, shouldn't they have learned this lesson by now? I mean, how could the Pharisees have positioned themselves to be opposed by God? Probably the same reason many of us allow ourselves to position ourselves to be opposed by God. Because out of all the sins that we struggle with, pride is the most deceptive and most dangerous of all sins. Listen to what C.S. Lewis, uh, in his book, Mere Christianity, and listen to what he says uh, in the chapter entitled, The Great Sin. He says, Today I come to that part of Christian morals where they differ most sharply from all other morals. There is one vice of which no man in the world is free, which everyone loathes when he sees it as someone else and of which hardly any people except Christians ever imagine that they are guilty themselves. I have heard people admit that they are bad-tempered or that they cannot keep their heads about girls or drink or even that they are cowards. I do not think I have ever heard anyone who is not a Christian accuse himself of this vice. And at the same time, I have very seldom met anyone who is not a Christian who showed the slightest mercy to it in others. There is no fault that makes a man more unpopular and no fault which we are more unconscious of in ourselves. And the more we have it in ourselves, the more we dislike it in others. The vice I am talking of is pride or self-conceit. And the virtue opposite to it in Christian morals is called humility. You may remember when I was talking about sexual immor- or sexual morality, I warned you that the center of Christian morals did not lie there. Well, now we have come to the center. According to Christian teachers, the essential vice, the utmost evil is pride. Unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all that are mere flea bites in comparison. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. For those of you who have recognized pride in your own life, you know that everything C.S. Lewis said there was true. Right? Pride is extremely difficult to see in ourselves. But offensive when we see it in others, isn't it? I mean, we, it, it just turns us off. It's so offensive. And most non-Christians don't even see pride as a sin. I mean, just turn on the TV and you'll see pride running rampant in our society and even celebrated, right? I mean, even in the most benign of programming, like my wife likes House Hunters on HGTV. Um, 
And those people looking for a new house, um, some of them can be so prideful in the way they talk about how, ooh, that house is just beneath us, right? You know, we deserve so much better. And it's just like, it's, it's just offensive to watch. And, and have you ever watched Chopped on Food Network? Oh my gosh, it's like pride is a prerequisite for chefs, man. It's unbelievable. But every episode, Vicky, we find, Vicky and I find ourselves rooting for the one who exhibits the most humility because it's just so offensive, right? Again, we hate it in others, but it's so difficult to see in ourselves. And that's why your Heavenly Father loves you enough not to let you stay in pride. Which is exactly what Jesus said at the end of this parable, right? He said, for those who exalt themselves will be humbled. And those who humble themselves will be exalted. Now, I'll be honest. There was a time in my, um, when, when my spiritual pride saw myself in this verse as the humble one who would be exalted, right? And, and other people as, you know, the proud who would be humbled and Whenever I saw some, someone, you know, some of the most, most offensive, proud people, there was a part of me that'd be like, get them, God, knock them off their high horse, right? But after a few times of God knocking me off my high horse, I, kind of, I realized that God humbles us because he loves us. And he doesn't want to stay in a destructive posture anymore. See, God doesn't, when it says God humbles, or, yeah, humbles those who exalt themselves, God doesn't humble people out of spite, right? He's not like, oh, yeah, you got some pride in you? Let me knock, knock it, you off, you know, wham. It's not like that. God loves you enough. Everything God does is out of love, right? God loves you enough not to let you stay in that destructive posture of pride. And when he humbles those who exalt themselves, it's always done out of love. But it is far better to humble yourself, right? It's far better. Why? Why is it better? Because because when we humble ourselves, God exalts us. How much better is that? I mean, how much better is it to be exalted by God than to be humbled by him? Whether it's done out of love or not, it's much better to be exalted by God. In either case, it's all dependent on our posture. It's all dependent on where we live. Do we live in pride or are we living in humility? So then, how do we humble ourselves? How do we posture ourselves so that God exalts us. Well, first we need to understand what humility is and what it isn't. So let's start, first of all, with what humility isn't. Humility is not, or humbling oneself is not self-degradation. Right? Try, tr- the, the humility that we're called to cultivate in our lives is not about trying to convince yourself that you're unworthy, that you're pond scum or navel lint, right? It's it's not about beating yourself up and saying that you're nothing. 
I used to know people who, who thought that humbling themselves means that they would just pray and ask God to tear them down and make them nothing. But that's not it at all. God didn't, if God wanted to make you nothing, he would make you nothing. But he made you something. He made you a child of God, right? He made you in his image. He gifted you with talents and, and gifts to be used in his kingdom. Instead, humility begins with knowing who you are in relationship to God and others. Paul tells the Romans in chapter 12 of his letter to them, Because of the privilege and authority God has given me, I give each of you this warning. Don't think you are better than you really are. Be honest in your evaluation of yourselves, measuring yourselves by the faith God has given us. Just as our bodies have many parts, and each part have a special function, so it is with Christ's body. We are many parts of one body, and we all belong to each other. And he goes on to describe that because we each have differing gifts, we need to use those gifts to build each other up, right? Now again, pride is super deceptive. And you can read that part in in verse 3 that says, measuring yourself by the faith God has given us. And immediately find yourself back in pride by comparing yourselves, right? When you've, listen, please don't be deceived. There's nothing healthy about comparing yourself with another person. That's not what this verse is talking about. It doesn't, when he says, measure yourself in the faith God has given us, he's not saying measure yourself in faith against the other person. There's nothing healthy about comparing yourself with another person. Because falling into the comparison trap, there's only one of two destinations. Either you come out on top and you look down on them with pride, or you don't measure up and then you beat yourself up with self-condemnation. There's no win with comparing yourself. But humility begins with knowing who you are in relationship to God and others. Scripture teaches us that we're all equal in Christ. We're all made in his image. The gospel is the great equalizer. So humility begins with knowing who you are in relationship with God and with others. Humility with God means recognizing you are completely dependent on him. This is probably one of the most difficult things for us in this hyper-independent culture that we live in to really grasp that we are truly dependent on him for everything. Um, And and because of our success, it's so easy to lose sight of that. It's so easy to think, I did that. I accomplished that. I did this. And it's so easy not to miss that it was God who gave you that ability. It It was God's grace that carried you through all that trying time and you didn't stumble in, in you know cheating with your wife or your husband it was God's grace that carried you through in um, 1863 President Abraham Lincoln issued Proclamation 97 and I just want to read a part of this proclamation it says we have been 
the recipients of the choicest bounties of heaven. We have been preserved these many years in peace and prosperity. We have grown in numbers, wealth, and power as no other nation has ever grown. But we have forgotten God. We have forgotten the gracious hand which preserved us in peace and multiplied and enriched and strengthened us. And we have vainly imagined in the deceitfulness of our hearts that all these blessings were produced by some superior wisdom and virtue of our own. Intoxicated with unbroken success, we have become too self-sufficient to feel the necessity of redeeming and preserving grace too proud to pray to the God that made us. It behooves us then to humble ourselves before the offended power, to confess our national sins and pray for, the, for clemency and forgiveness. Now, therefore, in compliance with the request and fully concurring in the views of the Senate, I do by this my proclamation designate and set apart Thursday, the 30th day of April, 1863, as a day of national humiliation, fasting, and prayer. Isn't that amazing? This day of national humiliation, fasting, and prayer was actually the precursor to what we now know as the National Day of Prayer. But I wonder how far we as a country have fallen in recognizing our dependence, how dependent we are on God. And I wonder if the prayers of our country sound more like the prayers of the Pharisee than the prayers of the tax collector. If ever there was a time for us as a country to fall on our knees and Humble ourselves before God. Now's the time. James tells us in chapter 4, 10, says, When you bow down before the Lord and admit your dependence on Him, He will lift you up and give you honor. That should be so encouraging. I mean, that should give us such hope and encouragement that if we just bow down and admit our dependence, he will lift us up and give us honor. I mean, do you realize that God actually takes pleasure in our efforts to humble ourselves? And he takes pleasure in being able to lift us up and exalt us when we do? So humility begins with knowing who you are in relationship to God and others. Humility with God means you're, you recognize you're completely dependent on Him. And humility with others means considering them more important than yourself. Philippians 2.3 Do nothing out of selfish ambition or empty pride, but in humility consider others more important than yourself. And this was was what Jesus modeled for us. See, Jesus taught what some call the law of inversion, right? Like he taught things like, if you want to be first, you've got to be last. 
If, if you're willing to lose your life, then you're actually going to find your life. If you want to be great in God's kingdom, then you've got to be the servant of all. And I know that makes no sense to our minds, right? It doesn't make any sense. Like, I have needs and desires in, in all of the relationships I have, and hopefully those needs and desires are all healthy ones. But common sense says that if I want my needs and desires met in those relationships, the best way for me to, to get those needs and desires met is to make my needs and desires a priority, right? I mean, that's how I'm going to find happiness is putting my needs and desires first. But Jesus is like, yeah, 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 I, I get how you might think that way, but you're wrong, right? It's not the way it works. In God's kingdom, everything is flipped upside down to the way the world sees things. At the end of the day, what you're really looking for will not come by making your needs and desires first. But it will come when you make others put them first. It comes when you put, you consider others more important than yourself. I want to close by um, reading a passage from Philippians 2. Uh, Because it is the perfect picture of humility. Philippians 2, beginning with verse 5, says that you must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not think equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privilege. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on the cross. That's our example. To humble ourselves in obedience to God. That's what Jesus did. That's what he asked us to do. To humble ourselves in obedience to God. But then... As it continues, we'll see what happens. Therefore, God elevated him to the place of highest honor and gave him the name above all other names, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus is our example of humbling ourselves and what happens when we humble ourselves. He shows us how to humble ourselves. And God shows us what happens. When Jesus humbled himself, God raised him up to the highest honor. And his promise is true for us. If we humble ourselves, he will exalt us as well. Amen? Let's pray.